listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Um, I want to kind of give a little bit of a background where we are. Then we will stand for the reading of God's Word. But this week, we've been praying for several things, and we want to continue to do that. We have several that are recovering this week from several different surgeries that need uh, our prayers. Many requests for all kinds of relationships, whether it's with a spouse, with children, with relatives, neighbors, people they work with. Many requests of the difficulties at times with relationships, for peace in a lot of other ways. And even understanding. So if you would, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. For directing and guiding our steps to be here. I believe with all that I can that you have something for us. That you want to speak into us this morning. And so Lord, I ask that you would do that. Lord, on behalf of others, we want to pray. We want to pray for those that are recovering, that need uh, your touch of healing in their, their lives this morning. For those that are in some difficult stages of relationships, we pray for peace where it is needed and understanding of those searching for your guidance. And so we pray for these this morning. We praise you for this last weekend in our, uh, the ladies' retreat, that it went so well for the truth that was spoken, for the relationships that were built. And so, Lord, we give you all the, the praise and glory for those things happening. But, Lord, as we go to your word now, Lord, we need you because this is a, a difficult passage. And as I will admit in just a moment, I did not want to preach this this morning. I tried to maybe do some other things, but Lord, you would not let this go. And so help me to speak clearly and straight from your word this morning. Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see truth. Give us ears to hear it. Minds to understand it and hearts to believe it. And so we need your spirit to do that for us this morning. That you would teach and guide us. Lord, I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be in chapter 3. We began several weeks ago walking through the book of Romans. And here's the thing about when we walk through books, is it causes us to teach passages that we might not necessarily want to go through or want to teach. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. But if you are a guest with us this morning, let me kind of orient us where we were. We begin with Paul's introduction of who he was and why he's writing this book to the churches that are in Rome. He told us his purpose, he said this, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason why, it's not that Paul is so great, it's not that he's so powerful and he's so eloquent with his words. He is not ashamed because it holds the power of God for salvation. He says to the Jew and also to the Gentile, to everyone who believes. Well, then he starts down this road of indictments. And first, he goes after the Gentiles. He tells them that they are ones that God has revealed truth to them. It's in nature. It's in their own minds. 
But they have suppressed that truth and they exchanged the glory of God for idols. And he tells them, you're without excuse. You have no excuse because God then now turns them over to what their heart wants the most. And that's really a form of judgment. When God lets us and he goes and allows us to pursue the things that our heart wants the most, it's a form of judgment. Well, then in chapter 2, he turned to the idea of those that like to judge others. We saw there's really kind of two ways. There's a right way to judge. That's caring about a person and seeing something they're doing or what they're believing and going to them in love with truth, wanting to help them. But they were doing it the wrong way, where we judge others. And uh, it almost brings us a joy to call others out or to point out the things in their lives. It could bring us a happiness that they're in the wrong. But almost every time in Scripture where it talks about an addressing judging, and remember what it says? It also, almost always says, first of all, look in here. Before I ever go to someone else. Well, then at the end of chapter 2, he put the bullseye straight on the religious Jews. And we saw the dark side of religion. That it produces pride and arrogance and hypocrisy and blasphemy. And religion can only give a false sense of security. But the central theme of Romans is one word in the Greek. It means good news. It's the gospel. And I know we've been reading thinking, well, why in the world does Paul spend two and a half chapters and it's nothing but bad news? It's indictment after indictment after indictment. Well, Paul does this for a reason. Because next week, I promise, good news is coming. But it has taken us a little while to get here. But Paul does this for a reason, and it is this. For anyone to understand their need for a Savior, they have to acknowledge that there is a problem to be saved from. And that problem is what lurks inside each and every one of us, which Paul says over and over is sin. And a heart that wants to reject God all of the time. So today, what Paul's going to do, he's going to carry on an imaginary kind of conversation. He's going to kind of be both sides of the conversation that he wants, that he's going to have with the Jews. But he wants the Gentiles to listen in and find themselves in this text this morning. So Romans chapter 3. Church, will you stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. This is how the word of the Lord reads. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how can God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And by why not do evil that good may come, as people who slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation 
is just. So may God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Well, today we're going to talk about something that no one likes to talk about. It's an uncomfortable subject. It's something, in fact, I got up this morning and I reread through everything that I'd written this past week. And I realized in my introduction, I was still trying to kind of skirt around what this scripture was really trying to say. So I got up this morning and I know they're thinking back to the back, they're looking, wow, this is not at all what his notes are saying. It's because I could not move past it. What I wanted to say isn't what the true meaning of the text is really speaking about. And that's why we want to teach the way that we do, is we want the main point and what we talk about to be the main points of the text and to make it say nothing more or nothing less. And so this morning we're going to talk about sin. And the problem is, is it makes me And I know it makes many people uncomfortable that we don't like to talk about what lurks inside each and every one of our hearts. So this week, I have seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of those that I share a home with. I've even seen it in the lives of others. Because the truth about sin is that it always splatters. Sin never just affects just me, even though it does. My sin that I deal with, it affects those around me. This week, I've seen it affect people's mental state, be involved in their parenting, and even marriages, that we can't escape it. So I'm convicted about, but we probably don't talk about sin enough, that what we're going to look at today, because it makes us uncomfortable. I don't like talking about this. Because it gets really, really personal. And I think we must. And so here's the question to begin with this morning. Is how do you tend to respond to sin in your life? And I know what happens is anytime somebody teaches, I know it feels like, man, he must know everything about me. Why is he speaking right to me? Listen, I'm not doing that. This is God's word speaking to me. And our hope and prayer is that it does speak to you. That how do you tend to respond the sin in your life, when it creeps up, when it shows its ugly face, how do you tend to respond? Well, at the end of chapter 2, Paul has just set things up to go this way. He talked about us trusting in external factors to make us right with God, whether it's a tradition or a ritual or a custom. And over and over, Paul says, that is never, ever enough. He even said things of trusting in symbols like circumcision. They believed that if someone was circumcised, that it excluded them from God's judgment. But Paul told them over and over, no, it does not. That circumcision was only to be a sign of them being in the covenant community, and they were to then live out that truth in their daily lives. But he goes on to say last week that, man, it would be better to be uncircumcised and follow the law than to be following the law, at least they think they are, breaking it, and to be circumcised. So then the question most naturally would be what Paul is going to talk about. So it's like this conversation is happening that we don't really hear going on, but Paul's going to lay out a conversation because look back at verse 1. You can almost hear the Jew saying this. Well, then what advantage do I have being a Jew? You've told me all the things that I'm doing, that they mean nothing, I can't trust in those, so then what advantage is there to being a Jew? Or what value was that I, when I was 
eight days old, my parents had me circumcised? That's a very natural question that Paul is posing here. He's asking two things. What good is it to being a Jew then? Or what value does my circumcision even have? And if you stop right there thinking about chapter 2, you almost would expect Paul to say absolutely nothing. Because that's what he's been setting them up for over and over again. But look at Paul's response at the beginning of verse 2. Much in every way. He says there are numerous advantages, not just one. And I think these Jews had to be scratching their head going, Paul, I am so confused here. You told me all of these things I've been doing with the law and circumcision and following the rituals and the traditions, they mean nothing. But now you tell me I have more advantages, much advantages. So he's going to spell it out for him. He goes on to say, to begin with. That means, first of all, or, or chiefly. He's about to give them the biggest and most important advantage that they have in being Jewish. And notice what he says it is. The Jews, you, were entrusted with the oracles of God. Meaning, he says, the biggest advantage you have in being Jewish, being a Jew, is that you possess the word of God. Of all the advantages that they have, he says, this is the one that sits at the top of the list. He says, you look around, you've got this advantage over the Assyrians, those in Philistine, those the Babylonians and the Greeks, they don't have this advantage. And they had to be looking around at others and be thinking, man, they've got the better armies. Man, they have more land. Man, we don't have their magnificent theaters and buildings and bathhouses and all of these things that everyone around us has. But Paul says, you have something better. You have something that they don't. You possess the Word of God. Well, then we have to be thinking, well, then how is that even an advantage? Just because we have it. How can that be an advantage? Because if I'm Israel, this small little country... Surrounded by these massive countries around them. Well, it can't protect us from invading armies. Well, it can't make our crops grow. We can't use it to buy things or to build magnificent buildings. So how is the word of God not just an advantage, but he says the biggest or the most important advantage? Well, one, it helps us know the world around us. It shows us our purpose in life. It shows us, it tells us what's required of us. And it gives us the most complete and accurate picture of who God is. Because I think what happens a lot of times is we allow so many other things to define who God is. And at the top of the list, it always seems to be our circumstances. I mean, when things go well, things are working out like I hoped, then I tend to have a pretty positive view of God. When things don't go the way I want or life is hard, man, we can easily see how our view of God begins to change. But Paul says it is what gives us the most accurate and clearest picture of who God truly is. So here's what I think this means for us today. That the biggest advantage we have as Christians and believers is not that we live in a country with a great, mighty military. 
It's not that we live in a country with a lot of freedoms where we enjoy nice houses and multiple cars and steady jobs. Our biggest advantage is that we still today possess God's word because it correctly defines and shapes who God really is and how we respond to him. So this reminded me, even this week, of all the things that we do, the most important thing that we can do as a church. It's not our singing, even though I would say that's really important. It's not our fellowship or our service or our care for one another, even though that is very important. I would even say not even the Lord's Supper or baptism, even those, those are vitally important that Christ has commanded us to do and to follow. The most important thing we can do as a church is to simply read the Word of God. The most important thing we've done today isn't me even standing up here doing this. It was standing and being able to read the Word of God. That is the most important thing a church can ever do, to have God's Word spoken Reading God's Word is the most important thing we can do because God's Word is our biggest advantage. But what we're about to see is the darkness of the human heart. You're going to see three responses to sin. And I think it's easy going to see how we fall into the same thing. Because they are about to do some mental gymnastics that are really amazing. Pretty clever at times. Because you're going to see three responses to sin and how they are trying to go about this. Look at the first response in verse 3. They said, what if some then, Paul, what if some are unfaithful? You can almost see them talking about the other people. Not me, but then what if, what if some are unfaithful? Well, does their, unf- their faithlessness, their unfaithfulness, does it cancel out, does it nullify the faithfulness of God? And so here's their argument. Here's the flow of what they're thinking. Okay, Paul, if God's word is the biggest advantage I have, if God's word shows us who God is and how we're to live our lives, which you, Paul, have said over and over, we fell at, then I have a question. Since I'm so sinful, Paul, since I'm so unfaithful to follow and trust God, Does my unfaithfulness then cancel out God's faithfulness? Meaning, they're saying this, if we failed, as you've said we do, Paul, even with all our advantages, then our unfaithfulness is just showing that God's word is actually powerless and unfaithful. That what I'm doing would be able to cancel out what God is doing. Do you see what they're doing here? It's the simple phrase, they're passing the buck. They're really trying to say, hey, it's not really even my fault. Because if God really was in charge and he was all powerful and he was all faithful, then why am I still being faithless? So Paul's got an answer for them. Look in verse 4. He says, by no means, meaning absolutely not or God forbid. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And what you're about to see, Paul's actually jumping ahead because he knows what's coming next. 
But here's what they're doing. That God is always and forever reliable and trustworthy and true to his word. Even if everyone in the world is a liar, it doesn't change who God is. Even though everyone around us, including us, God will always remain faithful. But think about how we should use this to even shape how we view God. You know, our view of God can be shaped by so many circumstances and people around us, especially when those that claim to be Christians, whether it's a parent, a spouse, a boss, or a coworker. When we see so much unfaithfulness around us, men, or even when we are the ones being unfaithful, how that begins to shape how we might think God is. But when we see our sin and the effects of our sin on those around us, man, how often do we try to pass the buck? Because really what they're doing, they're putting God on trial for their own sin. But God is never responsible for our sin or our unfaithfulness. It's really what Paul is saying. So then they have another response or another objection. Okay, they're thinking that didn't work. So look at verse 5. Okay, so if our unfaithfulness doesn't nullify, or faithlessness doesn't nullify God's faithfulness, so what about our unrighteousness? But if our unrighteousness then sure serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human argument or human terms. So notice the flow of this argument. This is genius. So not only are we unfaithfully saying which we are, And God's faithfulness will always be there, even when we are unfaithful. But we're also unrighteous, like you've told us, Paul. But then you get to think about it, Paul, that our unrighteousness shows or highlights God's righteousness, doesn't it? And he would say, yes. Well, then how can God then judge us? Meaning, if our sin brings brings out the good in God, then how can God then turn around and judge us for what we're doing To make him look good. How is it right for God to judge when our sins magnify his goodness and his glory? Since what we are doing enhances God, then how can he really hold us accountable to that? So not only do we blame God and others for our own sin, we try to downplay it. That's what they're trying to do here. That We do all kinds of mental gymnastics to justify or to convince ourselves that what our sin and what we're doing, hey, it really isn't that bad. Man, I look around at all the things in the world, I'm thinking, man, I'm really not hurting anybody here. Or, you know, I can stop anytime I want. Or at least, well, I'm not doing that, that I heard about what someone else is doing. And we try to convince ourselves that our sin is really not that bad. That is what they are doing by saying that God could not rightly judge. How can God have any right to judge when really what I'm doing, it just goes to magnify who he really is anyway. So it really can't be that big of a deal that God can even judge me. But notice again Paul's answer. By no means. Absolutely not. God forbid. But before he can even elaborate on what he's about to say, Another objection is raised. Look at how verse 6 goes on. For then how can God judge the world? 
But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. The same argument. So if my lie only makes God's glory more and more seen, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? They're bringing up the same thought. How can God judge me if what I'm doing makes God look even better? So they restate the argument. Man, what they're really saying is, I'm kind of doing God a favor here. But then look at the last objection. The last objection is at the beginning of verse 8. And you actually see this, you'll see it again in Romans 6. And why then not go and do evil that good may come? He's saying if our unfaithfulness and, and, and our unrighteousness only proves how faithful and righteous God is, then let's just continue down the path that we're living and let's just live the lives that make us happy Because really, in the end, God's the one that really gets the benefit. And what a justification for sin. To downplay the evil that lurks inside everyone to such an extreme level of saying, hey, my sin, man, it's really good for God. And I just need to keep doing what I'm doing because he's the one that's really benefiting from all this. So then Paul's going to cut right to it. Because look at how he ends at the beginning of verse 8. As some people slanderously charge us with saying. He says, I know what I'm about to say. People will call me a slanderer. But he says, I'm going to stand by this truth. Their condemnation is just. You notice he doesn't even try to rationalize their argument. He stops answering. He says, I know this and you know it. By what you're doing, your condemnation is just. That even though you're trying to hold God responsible for your sin, or you're downplaying the seriousness of it, or you're trying to twist things for somehow your sin is good for God, God said, just know their condemnation is just. He's saying there is no mental um, or amount of mental gymnastics that you can ever do to justify or excusing what we are doing that we would ever stand not condemned. Jew, Gentile, you and me, we stand guilty and we stand condemned. So then what could this possibly mean for us today? I think the question has to be is how serious do we really take the sin in our own lives? I mean, is there some sin that you know you've been dealing with where you've tried to think, well, it's really not that big of a deal? Or is there some sin where you've constantly been trying to justify it? Or make some excuse for it. Well, this is just how I was raised. Or, man, I don't know any better. Or whatever the justification might be. Or, is there a sin that's got such a stronghold that you seem that you've tried everything that you could possibly think about and nothing has worked? And you just tend to kind of lose all hope. Well, hear Paul's words this morning. If that is the case... All we are doing is storing up more and more wrath for when the day of judgment comes. That there is no excuse, whether we're trying to convince ourselves it's no big deal or I can stop any time. We're trying over and over to justify that sin. Or we've just gotten really, really comfortable where it doesn't even bother us anymore. 
That Paul says you are living under God's condemnation and one day that wrath will be poured out on you. That there is no excuse that will ever be good enough to remove God's judgment. Paul says you stand condemned. And so what Paul has done, he's gone back to chapter 1 and indicted the Gentiles. He moves to chapter 2 and he indicts the Jews. In the beginning of chapter 3, there is no one that is left out. That we all stand condemned. And that's Paul's purpose. That is why he's setting everything up for what will finally happen next week. But I want you to know there is an alternative. That we no longer have to be storing up wrath. And Paul said it back in verse 4. Because he did something that's really remarkable. What he is doing, Paul is going back, and if you've got a cross-reference, he's going back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is probably the the greatest of all the confessional psalms. It's the psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan with his sin with Bathsheba. And he writes Psalm 51 after he has sinned greatly against Bathsheba. He has misled the people that are trusting in him. He's ordered the death wish of Uriah, her husband, who was nothing but loyal to him. And David cries out for mercy. And he pleads for forgiveness. But not only does he ask for forgiveness, but he asks to be cleansed of that sin. And so that's the first thing I've noticed. I think oftentimes when I go before the Lord and, and I confess my sin, I mean, I'm seeking forgiveness. But do I ever get to the place where I'm asking God to rid me of that sin? Not just forgive me, but cleanse me of it. But then what Paul does, it's something that many people just kind of move past because it is something hard to ask and to pray. So look at Psalm 51, and it's in verse 4. And notice closely what Paul, or what David, is asking, or what he is saying. He says, against you, and you only have I sinned. Now, first of all, that seems a little strange, because he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the people that are trusting in him. He sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, he knows it is God the one, that he is the one I have offended most and foremost. That I've done evil in your sight. But then he is going to say the words that Paul is going to quote. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So, Paul, so David not only admits and acknowledges his sin. He not only asks for forgiveness. He not only asks to be cleansed. In no way, shape, or form did he try to excuse or justify his sin. I'm sure he could come up with many. The people just don't understand all that I go through. Well, you know, maybe she was setting things up to where I would notice her. Well, you know, I'm just a man. I, I have weaknesses. In no way, shape, or form does he ever try to excuse or justify himself. He asked for forgiveness and he asked for cleansing. Do you notice what he just said? He said, God, whatever you decide to do, however you decide to punish me 
However you decide to pour out the wrath that I deserve for these sins, I deserve it. He says, God, you are justified in whatever you're going to do, whatever you're going to say, and you will be blameless. No one can blame you for the judgment that is only due for what I have done. Just whatever, God, you're going to do, whatever comes next will be just and right. And your judgment on me will be absolutely blameless. So God, David recognizes who he really is deep down, that he's a sinner that stands condemned. And whatever God does next, he says you will be completely just and blameless because David knows what he deserves. And what you've seen right there, that is true confession. So I want to show you something else and ask you to go home and do it. In your Bibles, write down 1 Samuel chapter 3. It's the story between Samuel and Eli. Remember Samuel's the young boy and Eli's the priest. And Samuel begins hearing a voice in the night. And he runs to Eli and he tells him, go back to sleep. Well, finally God speaks to Samuel. And he brings a judgment upon Eli. So I want you to go this week and I want you to read Eli's response. And what's interesting is these were both done and written about the same time. And just notice Eli's response. So then I ask the question once again. Is there some sin in your life that needs to be dealt with and confessed? And if you will follow Paul's advice and David's example, this is the promise that we have from God straight from his word. No matter how much sin you brought in with you this morning, grace allows you to face it to own it, and to not shift the blame. That no matter how much sin you brought in with you this morning, you can leave completely forgiven and have a right standing with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. If you will put your trust in Him. Because the promise of Scripture is that God's grace will always be more powerful than your greatest sin. And that's what Paul is about to lay out for the next 14 or 13 chapters in the book of Romans. But he had to lay this foundation of who we really are and where we really stand and to break everything down to where we have nothing else to stand on. To be able to say, God, whatever you decide, you will be just and blameless because this is what I deserve. And that's what makes the cross so beautiful and so glorious. So will you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to give you just a moment to search your own heart to where you are this morning. Did you come in here with a heavy heart of knowing the sin that has happened this last week in your own life? Knowing that our sin can never be justified. But the beauty of grace is that we can come and we can face it, we can own it, and we do not have to shift the blame. That if we come and we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive. But not just forgive, to cleanse, to rid us of that sin. So before I lead us in a word of prayer, I just want to give you just a moment to sit where you are.
and to contemplate the truth of God's word. Lord, I don't know where each and every person is this morning, but what is going on in their lives. But Lord, I believe you do. Lord, I know there have been things and and opportunities and and ways this week that, that each and every one of us have come face to face with our own sin. And that has come out in a variety of ways. We've looked around and we've seen it in the lives of others. Lord, this is not a comfortable topic. It's not an easy conversation to admit who we really are, of the evil that lurks within us. Because Lord, we often want to shy away from it. We don't want to face it. We don't want to be shamed or embarrassed. We're afraid to admit. But Lord, the truth of grace is that we no longer have to hide from it that we can acknowledge it knowing that we can own it and that we no longer have to shift the blame. That your grace is greater than our greatest sin. So no matter how much sin we brought with us this, in with us this morning, that we can leave completely forgiven and cleansed. So I'd pray for myself and those that need to do that this morning. That we would acknowledge, that we'd ask for forgiveness And seek cleansing. And Lord I stand on the promise of the truth this morning. That you can do and you will do that. So Lord I ask this. In the only name I know how. In the name of Jesus Christ. That makes all of this possible. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments. We want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.